All right. Well, here we are. What is this, week four? Is that right? Man. You think you'll make it to week 13? Is that how many we have? Yes. You think you'll make it? All right. Well, that's good. Well, let's pray a little bit about our study, and then we'll dive into looking at the chronology of the Gospels. Let's pray. God, thanks for this crew. Thanks for their commitment to studying your word. Thank you for this opportunity to do what we can't easily do on the weekend, to take a step back and look at the, as we have the backgrounds, the literary uh, theories about the Gospels, the time frame, the, just that 30,000 foot view we often talk about that gives us uh, a, just a, a handle on where your word is going historically and uh, the setting for these events that we cherish and are so important to us. And I pray tonight be a great night for us to have uh, just a good uh, set of context and bearing on the gospel story. And so help us through this, I pray tonight would be uh, just enlightening and helpful and, and just giving us that bolstered view of you and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray it would be helpful in many, many ways. God, I pray uh, just for our minds after our day of uh, work and all the other things that have been going on in our minds, get us uh, transition now to think clearly about uh, the, Matthew, uh, the gospel of Matthew as well as the other gospels and how they relate and tell us and present to us the story of Christ. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The chronologies of the gospels. Now, some of you last week complained that I didn't give you my view on the source uh, criticism, and I'm just acknowledging the fact that I didn't give you my view on that. <laughs> no, it's, uh, and, and we did run out of time as we often do, and this week I tried to prepare less so that we wouldn't run out of time. We'll see if that happens, but um, I certainly think that we have to make the decisions based on what we talked about last week, based on, as I tried to set up, the absolute authority of God's word given to us clearly through the apostles and prophets and anything that's going to detract from that, not potentially detract from that, but actually detract from that, of course, we need to reject. So uh, I don't know that a completely independent composition of the gospels is necessary. Certainly in Acts chapter or uh, Luke chapter one, we have a uh, an admission of Paul's uh, dependent on sources, at least his gathering and research on what he wrote. Uh, so uh, I am not uh, ready to talk about, you know, I'm all in favor of the Griesbach theory or the two source theory or the Mark without Q theory or whatever. I, I, uh, I don't really know. All of it is trying to make sense of the data. And I may have may not have said this on the platform, but I had these questions afterwards that, um, if you are trying to do the detective work on mark and priority or, or which gospel you think came first, I think there's plenty of theories that work logically. And so um, I don't know that it's necessary that we all come to some firm conclusion on those things. I think the concern of conservatives about having independent composition on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, are trying to make sure that in our understanding of source criticism, we don't get into saying this is a human document, this is just a purely human, you know, we have to explain all these things in human naturalistic terms. So I hope I made that clear, at least in the opening 
of how I set up our discussion last week about all that. So I'll leave it at that, but I know that I had several people asking me that after I got off the platform and throughout the week what I actually thought about that. Tonight, though, I want to talk about the chronology of the Gospels. All right, so let's talk about that. And first thing we need to pin down, and I know I've gone over this quickly in the past, I want to talk about the birth of Christ and make sure we could answer this if someone asked us about when was Christ born. And to do that, uh, the data that we have that gives us clarity about this is not only Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, but Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, which are often quoted during our Christmas plays. In those days, it says, it's up on the screen, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, of course, Luke has already told us he's going to be very careful about all of his research, all of his sources. And so uh, we know that we've got all of these uh, very important dates and leaders. And uh, even as we'll see in chapter 3, about the 15th year, and we haven't given us as, as specific information as uh, we can, can, as we need, even from this distance, which is 2,000 years later. I put that little chart up there. Most of it is filled in except for the numbers. But I want to remind you of the fact that, of course, when Christ was born, no one was looking at their calendar going, oh, it's, you know, it's 1 BC, you know, Christ is being born. So uh, all of that didn't happen till sometime later. The uh, calendars were all dated in the time of Christ by the founding of the city. And in uh, the abbreviation for that is A-U-C, which is Ab Urbi Candida, which means Ab, that the year uh, Urbe, the city, Candida was established. So the, from the establishment of the city, and of course the city that's important is Jerusalem, uh, Rome. Everyone was concerned in the Roman Empire about Rome. The other end of this, you should jot underneath that 1278 AUC, because in 1278 AUC, there was a commissioning, as I mentioned briefly in the first week, of Dionysius, uh, who was told by the Pope to put together the next, uh, I don't know how many years it was, they wanted the next 90 years of Easter's all mapped out. And as you know, Easter is based on Passover, and Passover is based on the Jewish calendar, and the Jewish calendar is based on the lunar uh, phases, not the solar phases. Uh, so it's always tricky. Like we, we've, we are always working off of 365 and a quarter days a year calendar. And, uh, we have set up our calendar in a way that doesn't track with the lunar calendar, which a lot of Eastern societies and particularly, uh, the Jewish calendar was based on. So we're always, that's why we have Easter at a different time every year. It's never, it's not like Thanksgiving when we know, uh, it's, you know, whatever that is, the fourth week of fourth Thursday in December or, or November, rather. See, I, I know my dates. Well, when Dionysus put this all together, he dated the founding of Rome at 553 B.C., or at least we can translate it that way. When did this happen from our perspective in our dating system? 525. So in 525, from our perspective, based on what Dionysius put together, based on the commissioning of the Pope, was when we got our calendar. And of course, his to figure out if we're going to date things by um, the founding, not the founding of Rome, but the birth of Christ, we had to figure out when he was born. So he went to passages, uh, or I should say, let's say where he picked first. He picked uh, five, I'm sorry, 745 AUC. In other words, 754 years after the founding of the city of Rome, Christ was born. So that became 1 AD. 
right? 1 AD, that was the beginning of the calendar now for the church. And, uh, of course, that, you know, was everyone at that point. Uh, and, and it caught on, and now we're still dating our calendars by his research. Now, he had to base this on the passage I just read for you in Luke chapter 2, which has these three names, Herod the Great, uh, Caesar Augustus, and Quirinius, the governor. Uh, and so we know, well, let's talk about what we know. Caesar Augustus, uh, based on the dates of Rome, and this is uh, not contested, 724 AUC or 30 BC and 767 AUC 14 AD, that's the span of Caesar Augustus. So if Caesar Augustus is in um, Rome, as we studied this carefully in the first week, then we know it had to be between 30 BC and 14 AD. And because all we're doing now is checking Dionysus's work, right? Uh, Herod the Great, I'm sorry, Quirinius the governor, which gives some people some trouble because like Jerry Brown, he was governor twice in two different times, sadly, um, for us. Uh, sorry. Quirinius was in power as the governor from 742 or 12 BC uh, to 759 or 6 AD. Okay? So all so far, so good. Everything seems to fit. Dionysius, we know, picked a date that is within those two reigns, and everything's copacetic until we look at Herod the Great. Herod the Great, uh, based on what we're doing now, based on either using the Roman calendar of the establishment of Rome or the Christian calendar, we say we know he began his reign in 40 BC or 714 AUC, and his reign ended in 750 AUC or 4 BC. Now, how do we know that? Well, a few things very clearly. Josephus um, documented the death of Herod very clearly. And of course, you can see we've got to have him in power and alive because the census took place then. Of course, in Matthew, we find in Matthew chapter 2, he was the one who killed the baby. So he's part of the narrative story of the birth of Christ. Um, here are the things that were clear from Josephus. He noted the death of uh, Herod the Great by a uh, eclipse, a lunar eclipse, an eclipse of the moon that happened um, after his death uh, that year of the Passover. Astronomically, that had to be uh, March the 12th, um, 750 AUC, which is our 4 BC. Um, also, I should say that he goes on to explain after this eclipse and his death, which followed after that eclipse and that Passover, that they erected this monument to his uh, burial, which had never been found uh, until we were there as a church in Israel, and we were touring there in uh, 2007 when the uh, Hebrew University archaeologists uncovered that monument, just exactly as Josephus said, and so a lot of reasons to believe that everything that Josephus said about the dating was right. And again, if you take the bottom numbers out and you just look at the top numbers, it's easy to date these things and say, okay, we know that Herod the Great died in 750 AUC and uh, in the spring um, after Passover. But then we'd know, well, wait a minute, we, we already know that Dionysus' calendar is at least four years off. Um, now, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 gives us another hint. When Herod 
saw, Herod the Great, of course, that he had been tricked by the wise men, the Magi who had come from Persia, from the east. He became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men. So Herod's just been tricked and we know he's not, this is not the shepherds worshiping Christ in the manger. It was the magi coming to the house, not the, the manger. Um, and so he was, he was a baby. How old was he? Well, if Herod is going to try and kill him and he doesn't know where he was, except that he's, he doesn't know where exactly he is. He just knows he's in Bethlehem. And he says, kill all the babies two years old and under. Then we know it couldn't have been that he was born three years before that decree. And if that was the decree that he gave before he died, well, then we know that we've got now a two-year window here. And I'm assuming it's not going to be, he might have been just over two. Uh, not that they're keeping all their birth certificates, but people know how old their kids are. And a, and a soldier, a Roman soldier, could look at a kid and determine he looks like he's under two or two years old. So this is probably the high range. Uh, so we've got a period of time between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C., which, again, don't worry about those numbers because we're just doing the work Dionysius did as a rush job for the Pope, and we're saying, okay, he should have been clear about this in relation to the establishment of Rome and the death of Herod. So if Herod was reigning, Quirinius was reigning, Caesar Augustus was reigning, then we know that it had to be before 4 B.C., and since he died right after the Passover, right after the lunar eclipse, then we understand uh, that it was probably within a year of that. I'm just thinking Herod's going to say two years you know, and under, and we're going to look for a kid that had been there in Bethlehem uh, for probably a year. So we're talking between 4 B.C. and 5 B.C. Technically, you could say if Herod's going to risk not killing a baby because he's exactly two years old, which I don't think he would have done. I mean, we can get right up to 6 BC. So that may be more information than you need, but did you follow all that? Are there questions about that? You get, you get why we say that. And again, you need to know when someone says, when was Christ born? First of all, they say zero. There is no zero. You understand, right? That's oversimplistic. It's either 1 BC and then 1 AD. But the job that was done and look how far it was done into the church. 1,278 years, so to speak, uh, you know, not quite more than that, plus four, um, at least four, five probably, we are going to say he's born in 4 BC, which sounds ridiculous, right? Because the number is supposed to tell us when he's born. No, he's born at least before 4 BC. All right. Of course, the birth is given to us in scripture as um, something miraculous. Now, I dealt with this in a whole hour of well, half of it, I suppose, was thinking through it technically and logically and biologically, and half of it was pastoral because it was Christmas and I was preaching. But I think it was two years ago. Um, wow. Yeah, two and a half years ago now, I preached on the virgin birth. It's message number 1638 if you want to think through this a little bit more deeply. But we've got a birth here that is described to be a birth that is not normal, right? It's obviously not normal. If you think about how it works, that we have a genetic connection to the Davidic covenant, that the child of David has to be literally born to fulfill the promise literally, then we've got to have genetic material coming from Mary. Uh, but she didn't have a, um, 
She didn't have intercourse with Joseph, so we have to figure out how in the world that happened. Uh, did God create 23 chromosomes and provide a haploid cell so that we could have these two cells come together and create this body? I would think that makes the most sense. And I tried to think through that in that sermon in a lot more detail than I'll do tonight. But uh, it is not because we're trying to keep Jesus holy. I mean, the statement is made, he is holy. And holy means set apart and different. And if you have a child without any sexual intercourse, that's a different child, obviously. It's holy and set apart. But if you're saying, because he had to be sinless, and you're thinking about this human body being sinless, like... Jesus is making, or God rather, the Father is making a brand new Adam. And I know there's parallels between Adam, the headship of Adam over our race in terms of sin and the headship of Christ over the redeemed in terms of eternal life. I'm not talking about that. If you you think too simply about it, if you think, well, had to be a virgin birth so there'd be no taint of sin on this child. Well, this child was not like Adam in that Adam would have never died, you understand, unless... He had been cursed in Genesis 3. Um, Jesus was able to die. And that right there proves to us that his body was subject to death. So he's the child of Mary, at least with 23 chromosomes, I would argue, to fulfill the promise and to um, have a body that is subject to the frailties and weaknesses that every other human body is subject to uh, after the fall, post-Genesis 3. Um, so does that, that make sense? It is obviously supernatural. And of course, this is the first thing to go, uh, among liberals. And I hope you understand that we are not liberals. And, and I mean that theologically, not politically. I hope you're not political liberal either, but, uh, theologically conservative. And what we're saying is that God is clearly, um, it's God is a God who can clearly break the rules that he made. He made rules and he can break those rules. He can create something out of nothing, which he did, we believe, with the virgin birth, not completely out of nothing. He used existing uh, matter, I believe, just like the water into wine. He took oxygen and hydrogen and turned it into the very complex uh, compound that they know of as wine. Uh, and he did the same thing here. It is a miraculous event. And I say it's the first thing to go with liberalism because every time you see Christians or Christian organizations or churches or schools move away from the belief in a literal Bible. In other words, a Bible that is God-breathed, that God has spoken through. Then the first thing we're going to do is strip it of all of its supernatural um, characteristics. And I think Pete's going to be talking about that in his Fosdick um, messages coming up in in class on Sundays. Uh, But clearly we saw this in uh, the Jefferson Bible, we talk about that from time to time, stripping away the supernatural. We talked about it last week a little bit, and we talked about uh, redaction criticism and source criticism and all the higher criticisms that ultimately try to tear away the supernatural aspects of the Scripture. And as people who believe that God is a God, and I think it just makes perfect sense, a God uh, is a God who can step into time and space uh, in his own creation that he made, as opposed to us being created out of nothing through some inexplicable big bang. Uh, but God is a God who creates something out of nothing and does it intelligently with design and supernaturally. Um, whenever you hear people starting to fudge on the virgin birth, the next thing is the bodily resurrection, and it all is contingent on them taking the word of God seriously. All right, 
So anyway, the hardware, subject to the effects of sin, the software, pre-existent and holy. Of course, I am saying Christ is holy, but Christ is more than hardware. His hardware died. His hardware got tired. His, har- his hardware had hangnails, I assume. I assume as a teenager, he had zits on his face. Those were the things that happened with fallen human nature. And I mean that because he has a fallen human nature when I'm talking about the hardware in which he existed. His spirit, of course, was without sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He did not morally fail or lapse in any way. So, birth of Christ, virgin birth, 4 to 5 BC. All right. What we really want to know is about Jesus' childhood because anything that the Bible doesn't tell us, we get real curious about, and we don't know much about his childhood. So, a lot of folks stepped in after smoking their pot and wrote stories about it. And I often talk about the Gnostics as the pot smokers who decided to write books. And they're spurious because they're often given in the name of uh, apostles, and they're not apostles or famous biblical figures. And the Gnostics wrote a lot of books under the pen names of biblical characters. I don't even know that half of them were designed to have any authority because if you read them, and I read a lot of them, and I kind of enjoy reading them, and I don't enjoy it, but I am curious enough to read them and have, uh, you know, all, all of them that are available. I have them in my library. And so uh, when you read them, you think these guys can't be serious. And a lot of them, I don't think were. Some of them are, some of them were not. But you'll see them under the name of Mary or Philip, the gospel of Philip, or the ones that are very pertinent to our discussion now, uh, which you may have heard of, uh, that relate to the gospel stories of Christ or the childhood stories of Christ. Uh, one of the big ones that has the most information about Christ's childhood is the infancy gospel of Thomas. Um, the infancy gospel of Thomas. Of course, Thomas didn't write it. It was written far after, long after Thomas was dead. But there are many stories in there. And some of them have gotten around enough where maybe you've heard some of them. Um, the infancy gospel of Thomas speaks of clay birds coming to life. Jesus is, I'll read for you from chapter 2 of the infancy gospel of Thomas. Uh, when Jesus was a boy, I should make this bigger or start wearing glasses full time. I'm getting of that age. Jesus was a boy. He was five years old. So you'd be, you'd be interested to know what Christ was doing when he was five, right? Well, he was playing in the fords of the streams of water. He was catching and confining the waters and directing them in channels. Two stories grow out of this, by the way, about Christ. And he makes them into pools. So he's playing in the mud. He's playing in the water. He's playing, you know, as we did. I don't know if your parents let you do that. Mine did. Playing in the dirt. And he was making the waters become pure and bright. So there's a miracle right there. He changes his muddy water into pure, pure crystal water. He took soft clay from the wet ground and he molded it into 12 birds. Of course, it's going to be 12. He's going to play with sets of 12, you can imagine, in your imagination. And it was the Sabbath and many children were with him. But one of the Jews saw him with the children making these things. And he went to his father, Joseph, and he incited against Jesus. So he's going to complain that he's doing this on the Sabbath. And he says, on the Sabbath... Uh, your son molded clay and fashioned birds, something that is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So Joseph came. A lot of the stories of the infancy, Joseph is being a disciplinarian and Jesus doesn't like it. But anyway, so here's another one. Joseph comes and rebukes him. He says, why are you making these things on the Sabbath? And Jesus clapped his hands. And when he did, he made the birds come to life and fly away. And he said, go fly and be mindful of me, living ones. And the birds went away twittering it's before twitter um <laughs> when the pharisees saw this like they were hanging out at the house of a five-year-old jesus they were amazed and they went and told his friends um so 
That's the kind of story you get, which is very interesting. He's miraculously turning water, muddy water, into clear water. He's um, getting rebuked by his father for making uh, clay birds out of, you know, out of the dirt, out of the mud. And uh, he claps his hands and turns them to life. Some are much more fanciful than that. Like there's dragons, dragons in caves. And uh, suddenly there came forth from the caves, from the pseudo gospel of Matthew, it's called, the gospel of pseudo Matthew, chapter 18. And in the cave there were dragons, and when the children saw them, they cried out in great fear. And Jesus went down to his mother, and he stood on his feet before the dragon. So he came to his mom, gave his mom a hug, depending on the translation, and uh, these dragons uh, bowed down and adored Jesus, and then they went away. Therefore, they retired. So you had dragons bowing down to worship him. Again, this is the kind of thing you read in the Gnostics. It goes into fanciful, I mean, crazy stuff, like starting with the fact that they're dragons, not to mention that they're worshiping this child. Here's another one from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Uh, It's just in the next chapter, by the way, chapter 3. One of the scribes was with Jesus. He took a branch and uh, broke down the pools with the water that he was playing in. And he dried uh, this kid, this scribe, I don't know if it's an adult, I guess it's an adult, um, dried up the pools that he was playing in, right? In other words, he had made little pools and he took his stick and they drained away. And when Jesus saw what happened, he said to him, without root shall your shoot be and your fruit shall dry up like a branch that is suddenly broken up, uh, broken by the wind and is no more. I said it was an adult, it was an adult. He's called a scribe, but he's a child. And suddenly the boy withered and died. Um, So you mess with Jesus and his pools in the mud, uh, you become like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark and your face melts off, apparently. But that, I mean, again, this is what you're getting in the Gnostic writings in a lot of different... I mean, if you go to the adult stories of the Gnostics, uh, you get a lot of that. I've taught on that, too. If you want a a sermon just on the Gnostic writings, if you go on focalpointradio.com, you will find that, which is a new URL for us, by the way. Um, We finally got that URL. We waited a long time for that. Focalpointradio.com. This is, I don't need to read all these to you, but infancy gospel of, of, um, no, I'm sorry. This is the first gospel of infancy, it's called. 18th chapter. um, No, that's not it. Gospel of Thomas, chapter 4. A guy bumps into him, strikes him on the shoulder while he's running by. And Jesus said, you shall not go on your way. And suddenly he falls down and dies. You don't want to mess with his mud puddles and you don't want to bump into him because he's killing people left and right. Uh, He charms snakes and reverses a kid's snake bite. This is in the first gospel infancy, chapter 18, verses 13 through 16. There is a serpent that bites a kid. I'll summarize it for you. And he goes to talk to the snake and he says, go back to the boy that you put all the poison in. And so the snake came back and he told him to take his poison out of the boy. So the serpent went into his arm or wherever it was, into his body and sucked out all of the uh, poison and the snake died. Okay, do you get the feel of what you're dealing with with the Gnostic Gospels? And when people at Saddleback College or Irvine or wherever they're at and they talk about the Gnostics were really the real Gospels uh, and, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the, you know, the Constantinian Gospels that in the fourth century were, you know, put in place just to kind of, uh, you know, kind of be the, the 
quelling factor in the kingdom, uh, in the empire. It's nonsense. These are, if you just take time to read just even two or three chapters of the uh, Gnostics, in particular in the passage we're dealing with, the Gnostic stories of his childhood, you'll see uh, it's lunacy. And the way that they'll spin this, and I read some liberals on this this week, if you listen to how they say, well, this is really just showing how Jesus took his kind of magic powers and learned to wield them in the right way, and it's just telling us stories about how he kind of learned, you know, by trial and error, and he was killing a lot of people that got him mad, but he finally got it together. Nonsense, right? Uh, nonsense. Anyway, have you heard those stories before? Some of you have heard the clay pigeons before, no? Is that new to everybody? You've heard, some of you heard it. You don't want to raise your hand. It's okay. Well, there is one true story that we know about Jesus' childhood, and it's found in Luke, and that is when he goes with his family to the temple uh, for the Passover pilgrimage. And the pilgrimage, of course, is when they were required to go and present themselves with their sacrifice at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, they were doing that as they were told. And I preached a sermon called Priorities and Tension because it's a great lesson of how Jesus, as a 12-year-old, has to live under the authority of his mom and dad and yet live under the authority with the passion and calling of God. It's a great um, lesson in that that passage in Luke chapter 2. And it ends with a, a statement of God's favor on him in the midst of all this. And we, I thought it was a helpful study and I hope it was a helpful sermon for you way back in the day to see how even Jesus living under the authority as a 12 year old boy um, of course you remember he's left at the temple when they're heading back to Galilee and Nazareth where they lived and um, it's a th- it's about a four day walking journey if you got your sisters which he had and his mom and all that and he's the oldest so he's 12 he's got kids that, he's got siblings that are probably you know 10, 9, 8, 7 and they're all fixated on their younger people, their younger kids, and they get uh, a day's a day out. And you think, how could they leave their kids a day out? I mean, they're traveling in a caravan. They're traveling with family, extended family. And um, it was a big deal. And as I tried to illustrate it in that sermon, it's like us driving, you know, at a pretty decent pace, you know, four or 500, 600 miles a day to get to Chicago. And at our first stop in, in, I don't know, Flagstaff, we realize we don't have our kid. It's a panic, right? And they, they turn around and come back. And that's when Jesus says, you know, you should have known I'd be here in the temple, you know, about my father's business. And um, that's the one story we have. And all it shows us is that at 12 years old, which is the traditional time, even today, for Jews to recognize the transition into manhood or womanhood, uh, there's that story that is added for us that gives us a sense that he is in knowledge of who he is. He is in knowledge at that point in his life of his mission, and uh, he recognizes his, his status and who he is before his father uh, in heaven, that is. Also deferential to some extent to his, doesn't sound like it on the surface, but he is to his stepdad and his mother. So that's the one story. It's the only story we have past the narratives of his infancy. Christ's public ministry, just to put this in chronological order, it probably is that Christ was um, perhaps a little older than you might think. If you think he's born at Zero, just to use what people often say, which is obviously erroneous. Um, and a lot of people think, well, he died in 30 AD. Well, then his ministry had to start in his 20s. 
Um, you could say that, I guess, based on this verse. But Luke chapter 3, verse 23, says when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. So there's a time marker for us in terms of his age. Um, John eight fifty seven. here's the window now. The Jews said to him as they're confronting him in John 8, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, uh, which is a telling statement about his deity. The Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Come on. So we know that, you know, he's not 50, at least in the minds of his critics at this point. And I don't think they would have said, you know, 50 if, um, you know, he looked the 30, right? He, I mean, they were making a point to try and demean him that he was young. So it's even interesting that it's not 40. Because 40, I'm thinking he, he might have been, as we'll see, or close to it. All right, well, what do we have in terms of deciphering the year? And if we know the year, then we'll know the, the age, right? Well, that's where we get this passage that I referenced earlier, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, I put a little box there. You can see uh, in the 15th reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Triconis, uh, Triconitus and uh, Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now you want a set of reigns, right? I mean, that you've got them in that statement. Tiberius, um, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, Annas, Caiaphas. So if you are looking for the 15th year here of this, as I've already given you a sense of, um, you know, we, we can determine the dates of Tiberius and Pilate and all the rest with a lot of accuracy. Um, the tricky one is Tiberius, and I'll tell you why. Um, as I put on the chart there, 28 or 29, and I'm going to put it at 29 for reasons I won't go into, but I'll give you a source to do some reading on it. Uh, Tiberius's reign is complicated in terms of parts where you could put his, the start of his reign. Um, I'll leave that for your reading and I'll give you a book that might be helpful since we're trying to finish early tonight. If 29 is the beginning of his ministry, okay, and he was born in at least 4 but probably 5 BC, see that puts him when he starts his ministry in his mid-30s, okay? So there is even an adjustment in at least my mind. I grew up thinking he was probably 26, 27 years old when he started his ministry. Maybe that was just some weird thing I learned in Sunday school, but... He was almost 10 years older than what I grew up thinking he was in terms of age, or at least imagining. I never, never even asked, but I came to that conclusion in my head as a kid. If you want to read on this, probably the best book I know, there's a lot of books on chronology. There's a lot of you know books with charts and stuff, but this is a well-researched book that uh, I may not agree with everything in it, but the section where he deals with Tiberius in the 15th year and all that, it's helpful. And for six bucks or five fifty on Kindle, it's worth having. It's not that long. Uh, and around page 55, 56, and it won't tell you that on Kindle. I was looking at the printed edition today. But um, that's when he's dealing with the question of Tiberius's reign. But nevertheless, there are some questions about where you dated. It's a lot like uh, the governor of Syria that we talked about. There are certain things that sometimes make it hard for us to pin down which date he may be talking about. Nevertheless, 
I think we're pretty safe saying that Jesus was 34 years old approximately and that he started his ministry in 29 or late 28 A.D. Chronological aspects of the life of Christ by Harold Honer. I think most guys that go to Bible school or or are studying Bible in Bible school or seminary probably have this book and are made to read it, and I sure enjoyed it. He's got some different views on the last week of Christ, which I don't agree with, but super, super helpful book. All right, duration. Now we can figure out what year he died or how old he was when he died. Okay, a couple things that we have. John's gospel specifically gives us three Passover feasts and, and names them by name in John 2, John 6, and John 11. We have three Passovers. Now, the synoptic gospels only give us one, only one that they name because of the narrative and why it's important to name that he's at the Passover. But if you look at, and minus I should say there's a second Passover in Luke because of his 12-year-old trip to, to Jerusalem. But John is giving us a much broader view and longer view even of uh, some of the early things in his ministry, but three specific references to the Passover. Now the fourth, there is the fourth pilgrimage he talks about, but he doesn't name it as the Passover. And yet I think that it is the Passover and that's in John chapter five. So John two, John five, John six, John 11, give us four different Passovers that Jesus is in. Now you could argue that because John 5 doesn't say it, maybe it's a different pilgrimage. Now there is another pilgrimage that divides his ministry between his Galilean and Judean ministry. And that he says is a pilgrimage for the Feast of Booths. But when you're not talking about which celebration, you're usually talking about the Passover. So and again, we could argue through some of that, but I'm, I'm convinced if I'm going to teach the class, I'm going to say, I think you've got four Passovers. I think it's compelling, and I think that helps us figure out his ministry. So look at it this way. We have one Passover. That's John 2. We got a second Passover. That's John 5. We got a third Passover. That's John 6. And we got a fourth Passover. That's John 11. So if you got that and you say, how many years did Jesus do ministry. Well, it's one, two, three. And if he was ministering before that first Passover, I got three, over three years. And of course, that little bar, I put a little orange bar behind the fourth Passover because he gets crucified in the Passover and has um, a short ministry after that in his resurrection. So at least three. And so if you've heard from the platform, certainly for me and other guys, just kind of thrown out as we're preaching the three and a half year public ministry of Christ, that's why, that's how we get here. John 2, John 5, John 6, and John 11 references to pilgrimage feasts, three of them by name, Passover, one of them uh, we infer is a Passover. And I think that fits. And that's probably 90, I don't know, I'm guessing 80% of the guys I've ever talked to or read, uh, we come to that conclusion about the length of his ministry. So think about that. If he starts his ministry, what did we say? At 34, right? 35, 36, 37. He is pushing 40 at the end of his ministry. And as that opposition heats up, right? That's in John 8. Uh, We're already after the third Passover. He is pushing 40. I think that's why his critics and the Pharisees didn't say, you're not yet 40. He said, you're not yet 50. Uh, Because he probably could have passed for 40. He was pushing 40. And as we said at the the outset, that was not much, that's not much shy of the average 
life expectancy of a male in the first century. So he lived a full life in that sense. Although people did live a lot longer, and there were many examples of that in, in biblical time. But the average, and there's a lot high mortality rate and a lot of other things, but bring that number down. All right, ministry periods. Let's break these down very simply. And they're called different things. I'm going to call this the early Judean ministry because as we look at it more carefully and break it apart, you'll see it happens in Judea. Now, again, remember, I didn't put maps on this one, but we did deal with maps earlier. Judah is in the south. Galilee is in the north. Samaria is in the middle. That's how we think of this, right? Judah's in the south. What's the big city down there? Jerusalem, right? We got cities in the north that are really important to us. One is where... Jesus was actually, you want to talk about conceived, right? When he started his life, because we believe in the preborn being being live, right? Persons. Uh, that's in Nazareth. He does his ministry up in Galilee. He uses his home base of operation, Capernaum. All that's in Galilee. In the middle is Samaria. And then the Greek word, Perea, which will come up here in a second. Well, let's get to that in a minute. Judean ministry lasts about a year. Um, and there's not a lot on the Judean ministry. As a matter of fact, it's often called the period of obscurity because he is not all that popular. He doesn't have the big crowds. He has small crowds. Uh, he hasn't even yet commissioned the 12 apostles at this point. But the things that kick it off, of course, are the baptism, the baptism of, of John uh, on one of his um, scenes there on the Temple Mount that echoes the very last thing he did was the cleansing of the temple. He certainly started to get some attention there in the early chapters of John. So those are two things that at least just give you something to pin in your memory to that first early Judean ministry. Then the bulk of what we read about in the Gospels, I shouldn't say the bulk, but when we think about his ministry, he was teaching and doing miracles. The Galilean ministry is all up north. And that's when we hear about all those things going on around the Sea of Galilee and on the Sea of Galilee. This is the height of his popularity. This is when he does have the 12 apostles and he names them and the crowds and the masses and, you know, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and all those things are going on in his Galilean ministry up north. And then the Judean and Perean ministry, sometimes called the later uh, Judean ministry, sometimes called the uh, period of opposition, the period of persecution. Uh, but it certainly it starts a hard turn against Christ in this last, um, you know, um, six months or so is uh, all the opposition of the leadership and the Perean ministry. Perean. Perea in Greek means, um, wow, I remember specifically, I think it means the land over there. It just means the place over there. And I'm doing it the wrong way for you. Over there. And over there means from Jerusalem and Judea and even Samaria, it's on the other side of the Jordan River. So in modern, just remember this, modern day Jordan, which some of us have been to as we planted a church there, that's the Perean area. That's what it was called in the first century. So Perea was the land over there, and it was across the Sea of Galilee. I'm sorry, across the uh, Jordan. If you want more on that, I guess I can say, if you travel up north, I guess I should have put a map there. Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, right? That's that's simple. Uh, I'm doing it backwards again, aren't I? Mediterranean Sea is over here. Okay? Over here, Perea, that's everything that's east of the Dead Sea, Judea, Jerusalem, and even Samaria. But you start getting up near the Sea of Galilee and you go east. 
That's what we call the Decapolis. The Decapolis. Deca means ten. Polis means city. The ten cities. There were ten significant cities there uh, filled with, uh, well, there was Jewish people there, but non-Jewish people there. Lots of non-Jewish people there and Greeks there. Jesus administering the Decapolis as well. But, and he did that often from the, the base of his Galilean ministry. But his Perean ministry, you'll remember if you've been with us in Luke, he's coming from Jericho at the end. Remember the blind men he heals in Jericho? He's coming from that area, from Perea toward Bethany, which is up over the hill of the Mount of Olives, and then across the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, the clearing of the temple the second time, and on into the crucifixion, which we're studying now on the weekends. Early Judean, Galilean, later Judean, and Perean. I just put those together to simplify. Okay, simple enough. Now, let's deal with each section and be a little bit more detailed because I'd like to think carefully about the Judean ministry um, and elements you can put in your mind here. Obviously, John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist was looked forward to in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. There was going to be a forerunner. We learn way back in, in Luke chapter 1 that Zechariah, the priest, who was given the opportunity to go in and burn incense and do the priestly job, and there was a country priest, he was brought in, and as he did that, the angel appeared to him and said, you're going to have a kid, and he's going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Uh, that picture of this figure, this Elijah figure, would come before the great day of God. Now, it's confusing because the great day of God, with all of its consummation, isn't coming until Christ comes back a second time. That's why in the book of Revelation, it looks like there is another Elijah figure coming. And Jesus was asked about the Elijah figure. And he said, you know, they want to say, is John the Baptist the Elijah figure? If he is, then you're the Messiah. You're the Lord in in human form, which is clearly what we see in Zechariah and other Old Testament prophets, if you put those pieces together. So you've got this figure, and they're wondering if John the Baptist is him. And he is, and yet he isn't. He is in the sense that, and Jesus even says it in kind of a mysterious way, um, he does feel, fill that figure, but because there's a gap between the first coming and the second coming, there will be a figure again that's coming before the final and great day of the Lord at his second coming. Nevertheless, John the Baptist comes, he paves the way, as it says in Malachi 4, and he uh, brings the, um, he prepares the way of the Lord. And he, why? Because he's preaching what? We've got one word message, repentance. And that repentance is what people needed to do to get right with God. And that was the thing that would open them to be clarified about the focus of their trust. I was on the radio today trying to convince this guy who kept talking about the fact that there's a difference between the, you know, the works of people who want to get right with God. Uh, I think he may have been a hyper-dispensationalist in the Gospels and in the Old Testament. And I was trying to tell him very clearly the Bible has always been clear about how to get saved. You get saved by turning from your sins and putting your trust, Old Testament, in God's mercy and his grace. He'd provide somehow. And as Isaiah 53 says, there would be a sacrifice. And someone, this great suffering servant, would come and suffer as a guilt offering and be crushed so that our sins would be forgiven. Well, they had to trust in that. And the picture of that was the sacrificial system. Well, now in the New Testament, we get that very clear focus on Christ. So the message of repentance through John the Baptist laid the foundation. Now, baptism. Jesus gets baptized by John. If you go with us to Israel and you go to Qumran, you'll have the guys there or guides talking about the the baptismal uh, troughs and the baptismal, we call them tanks. I can't get that out of my head. The baptismal um, places. Come on, Mike. Whatever the name was. Uh, I forget what the archaeologists call them. But 
if you look at them, they're so small. And you realize that the way that they did it in Qumran, whether they're uh, scenes or whatever they were, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, they, um, they baptized themselves. They would go in there and wash. Talk about a, a ritual washing. And part of that was the picture, even in the Old Testament, as was forecast and prophesied, that you would be washed from your sins. There would be a cleansing. There would be, you'd be washed with this, with this pure water, that picture. And so the expectation and the symbolism of that cleansing was being washed. Well, the unique thing about John the Baptist was he was baptizing other people. So there's not clarity about the origins of baptism, but we do know this. There was something different about what John was doing in bringing people in and baptizing them. And when he comes, when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, remember what he said? He said, step right up, right? No. He said, no, you should be baptizing me, right? I shouldn't be the officiant for your baptism. You should be, you should be doing that for me because I'm the sinner and you're the perfect one. And he said, no, allow it now that we might fulfill all righteousness. I often talk about that at communion. I talk about the fact that Christ not only took our sins upon himself, but all of his human righteousness, even things like baptism. Thief on the cross goes to heaven, but he didn't obey Christ or he didn't obey God, right? He never got baptized. Well, Christ got baptized for him, right? He fulfilled all righteous requirements, and including even the ritual requirement, if you will, of baptism. Of course, the Lord's Supper as well. Jesus told every Christian to do that. There were Christians that will never have a chance to do that for a lot of reasons. Um, but Christ did it for them. So John baptizes Jesus, which is an interesting and new thing. And Jesus then says that we ought to be doing that until Christ comes back with new disciples. Another important event in the Prean ministry, which all takes place down south, not Prean, the Judean ministry down south, is the temptation by Satan. Uh, now again, we often see this as a vulnerable Jesus getting attacked by the enemy, but you know, as you read it, he's being led by the Spirit to confront the enemy. And while he is weak, and he's put in a weak position through his fasting, uh, the point is that he's going to show that he is going to overcome temptation. Why? Because he's fulfilling all righteousness. So he's tempted in every way, every category as we are, yet without sin. He needed to do that. And so the Spirit of God was leading the Son of God into this scene so that he might, for God the Father, purchase our salvation. And that temptation uh, was not the end of his temptation. As it says at the end of the temptation uh, that Satan left him for a more opportune time, Satan would be back clearly even when Peter is saying, you shouldn't go to the cross. You know, he looks at Peter and sees that as an emissary of the enemy at that point and says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is going to fill Judas, as we saw at the top of, of Luke 22. And so Satan's going to continue to attack him. But this was a um, kind of a, uh, an assault upon the enemy to show that he's going to do for us what we have not done well for ourselves. I already told you this, the cleansing of the temple at the first first cleansing. There were two cleansings. We just studied one in, in Luke and uh, the end of his life. And there was one at the beginning of his public ministry when he was 34 years old, 35 at the Passover. He has that exchange with Nicodemus. Now it may be that he went to Galilee. If you look at your harmonies of the gospels or your synoptics of the gospels, you may have his Can uh, like the miracle at Canaan which is up north in Galilee before Nicodemus. And it may be the case. Nevertheless, this took place um, down in Judea. The woman at the well is the transition from the Judean ministry to the Galilean ministry because he's going through Samaria, which is between the two. 
And most people going to Samaria, now you know the geography now that we've explained it to you. If you're going to Galilee, rather, if you're going to Galilee and you're a Jew and you're coming from Judea, you don't want to go through Samaria because you hate the Samaritans. You don't even want to walk on their roads. You'd go through Perea. That would be the way you would go on the other side of the, of the Jordan River, which Jesus refused to do. And of course, he engages in evangelism with the woman at Sychar, the woman at the well, and they come back and the disciples win a lot of people to Christ that day. So those are just the highlights of the Southern Judean ministry, which doesn't last very long, at least not in terms of the highlights. There are things that happen and it does last for a year, but it's this period of obscurity and not a ton. We don't have a ton of information about it. His Galilean ministry, though, we know a lot more about. Let's itemize some important events here. Cana of Galilee is up north. It's not far from Nazareth. It's not terribly far from Capernaum, where he's going to make his headquarters. It's more toward the Mediterranean. It's almost halfway between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, if my memory serves me correctly. Miracle at Canaan. So he turns the water into wine. Remember that? And it says this is his first miracle that he does. Even that should tell you all the Gnostic Gospels are wrong about miracles when he was a kid. No miracles. This is his first miracle. Uh, he's running out of town in Nazareth. Remember, he's reading the scroll. He's saying it's all fulfilled in your hearing. They run him to the edge of the cliff. They want to throw him off the cliff. All that happens up north in Galilee. Nazareth, which is toward the Sea of Galilee. The first fishermen are called, the first fishermen disciples, rather. The first disciples are called. They're pending their nets. James and John, you remember the story. Peter. A ton of preaching takes place here. I mean, this is his growing popularity. These Galilean ministry events are at the height of his popularity. He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling a ton of parables. He's doing a ton of miracles here. I think there's 36 miracles recorded of Christ in the New Testament. And um, a lot of them are happening here in Galilee. Feeding the 5,000, remember the stories. There are two pilgrimages to Jerusalem during this time where he goes back and forth. So it's not as though he doesn't leave Galilee. It's just that the the, the primary season of this period of his life for two years, he is there in the northern part of Israel. He commissions the 12. He names them apostles. He gives them authority. His ministry is growing. I guess if you wanted to look at it as a naturalistic thing, and I guess it's not naturalistic, but it's kind of like Moses appointing his captains, uh, Jesus here, because of the ministry and the popularity, he takes his 12 apostles, his disciples, his top 12 disciples, and makes them apostles. He is getting, at the end of the Galilean ministry, though he's growing in great popularity and crowds are going everywhere, so much so that it says he can't even find time to rest. Remember, he's going across the Sea of Galilee at times just to get away so he can eat. And when he gets there, he's got ministry to do. Um, so all of that's going on up north in Galilee, and the opposition is beginning, and the criticism is beginning. Now, it's always kind of been there from the time he reads the scroll in Nazareth, but now it's ramping up with important people that are opposing him. So... He moves down to Judea and Perea. Back of your worksheet. Important events here. Just six I'll name. The highlights. The transition, as I said, is a pilgrimage for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Sukkoth or the booths, tabernacles. I preached a message a few years ago on, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it was all about the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe you remember it better than I do. But I thought that was interesting too, talking about how it was commanded that they celebrate. I preached that one that year probably for myself, thinking it's Christmas again. I don't want to do Christmas again. And remembering that God commands us to celebrate the important things like he did in the Old Testament. It's a good thing for us to celebrate the important things, even though it's not a commanded feast. Uh, anyway, he goes and makes that pilgrimage. There's a lot of growing opposition. It's already started in Galilee. Uh, there's extensive teaching. As a matter of fact, so much of what we read in Luke is centered here. He's just section after section and passage after passage of him teaching and teaching and teaching. And there's various miracles that take place. He sends out the 72. Now he's setting up not just the 12, but as we read about in Luke, there's now 72 going two by two into the villages before him. I mean, and remember when I preached on that section, if you were with me, he's got, he's going to come. And I try to make the parallel for us. We are like that, right? We are preparing for the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming again. Christ would say, you guys go, you guys go unto all these villages and you prepare them and talk to them about me and then I'm going to show up. And that was because, you know, he had made such a big um, splash, if you will, in uh, Judea, like he did in Galilee. Though there was growing opposition, he was using these 72 to pave the way for his in-person teaching. Then he makes his final journey. He's out in Perea during all of this as well, at the end of this ministry time. I guess you could separate these sections, but he goes from Perea across the Jordan back to Jerusalem. Um, he goes through Jericho, Bartimaeus, the blind man, uh, Zacchaeus, all of that. He makes his way to Bethany. Bethany is on the other side of the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And then he's coming into Passion Week. Passion Week. Sunday. I believe Sunday was the triumphal entry. Some people don't agree with that. You can read about Harold Honer's and the Harold Honer's book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and read the different views on that. But, um, Sunday was the triumphal entry. That's when we, we also call it what? Palm Sunday. Christ goes and he officially presents himself to Israel as the king. Uh, I am of the persuasion theologically that he presents himself as the king. Of course, the plan of God all along is that he's going to be crucified. But here's the formal presentation to the people. And it's a presentation of himself as the king. Certainly in the book of Matthew with the kingdom offered and the kingdom rejected. And uh, therefore, we have this period of time that Paul talks about, this mystery period, this dispensation of God giving us this Jew and Gentile, one new man that's brought together all in God's prophetic view, obviously. But the kingdom will be restored. And the kingdom will be restored the way it was offered to them back at the triumphal entry where Christ comes under very different circumstances. But they set up their king uh, and Christ is ensconced in the throne of Jerusalem and we start something I believe called the Millennial Kingdom. Anyway, triumphal entry was the official uh, offer and rejection. On Monday, remember we taught so much about this and it moved slowly. I guess you may not have gotten this 30,000 foot view of it. But this is when we had the second cleansing of the temple. And what did that lead to? All kinds of opposition, all kinds of critics and questions and uh, trying to catch Jesus in his sayings. And it was a very tense time. He's teaching every day this week. Um, well, not every single day, but he's teaching several days in a row on the Temple Mount, Sunday and Monday. And then Tuesday, 
he goes up on the Mount of Olives and gives the, the Olivet Discourse, we call it. Uh, we have versions of this in more than one gospel, but the one you think of that's the longest probably is Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, we have all this discussion that's uh, precipitated by a question about Herod's temple and how beautiful it is and all of that. And he goes across the Kidron Valley and sits down and talks about these eschatological features that are very hard to untangle if you don't keep in mind the distinction between what's being said about Jerusalem and Israel and the things God has planned that I think have been postponed for the coming kingdom and what's going on with the church in between. Nevertheless, a lot of talk about the end times on Tuesday. Wednesday is a quiet day except for the fact that there's a plot to betray Christ that's brewing and a lot that's happening there. Um, but in terms of his public ministry, usually people see that as his down day. Thursday, of course, we're in the middle of um, in our study right now. And Thursday bleeds into Friday because Friday, um, all of this takes place early in the morning. But the Last Supper starts with Thursday, the upper room discourse that's lengthy in John chapter 14 through 16, where he's giving all that discussion about the apostles and what they're going to do and his promise to give them remembrance of his words and all the things we talked about last week regarding his prophetic work through the apostles, but a lot more than that. He's washing their feet, remember? He's talking about serving. He's talking about the spirit. He's talking about them not being orphans. He's talking about so many things in the upper room discourse that are fantastic. Um, that are so helpful. Then he's praying in Gethsemane, which we just got done studying about in uh, Luke 22. And he tells them to pray with them, of course. He's grappling with that. He's sweating over it. He's stressed out, uh, humanly speaking and physically. And then there's the arrest, which we just hit this last weekend. Uh, he's arrested. And Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus puts it back on. He said, I did tell you to have a sword, but now's not the time to use it. He didn't wait for an answer as I preached on the weekend. Now, I say Friday, but you don't understand. I mean, from our reckoning, we're moving past midnight at this point. We're having all through the early, early morning hours, the trials. I often call them the kangaroo courts. They're throwing together all the trials of Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and all the things that are happening in this time that are um, of interest as we'll get into great detail in Luke um, this, this, this weekend, we'll talk about Peter's denial, which all takes place in that scene in Caiaphas's courtyard all during the trial. So early morning. So all this plays out and everything related to the crucifixion takes place on Friday all through the day, right? He's being whipped. He's being beaten. He's, you know, Pilate's washing his hands of it all. Uh, Barabbas is being released. Um, He's being scourged. He's taking his cross to the city. He's being taken out of town. There's darkness uh, in the middle of the day. So he preached on a good Friday. Then he gets buried before the end of that day. They're hustling because the Sabbath is coming. And the Sabbath starts at Friday at sundown. So they're getting all this done. Joseph of Arimathea gives him the tomb to lay the body in. So all that's going on on Friday. That all, no news there, right? That's all stuff you know. Saturday's a down day, and it is every week for the observant Jew in the Old Testament. City shuts down, just like today. If you go there, I don't know how much it's changed, but um, the many times I've been there, you can't even get a, you know, your shops aren't open. You can't buy a Magnum bar. 
on Saturday. It's hard to get. Um, so Sabbath is down day. Sunday, of course, they're going down to put spices in on Christ's body. Early in the morning, the women are going to the tomb, and they get there and find that he has risen on Sunday morning. Which, again, if this were a fabricated story, I mean, there's no way you would write into the story that the women are going to find Christ's body first. I mean, there's so many things we talk about. We talk about the veracity of the story. He has all the appearances, uh, many of the appearances, not all of them, but several appearances on that day, starting with the Marys and uh, Peter and the apostles. So he appears to them as raised from the dead. Post-resurrection events, letter A. One week later, um, one week later, you might remember um, his appearance to the 11. Because on the night of Sunday night, the night that he is, the night of the morning he's been resurrected on Sunday night, he shows up to the 10 apostles. Judas is dead and Thomas is not there. Do you remember that? And so that week goes by and Thomas is like, I don't believe it. And uh, that's when we get a week later, it says, eight days after these events, Jesus shows back up and beckons John to, I'm sorry, Thomas to put his hands onto his scars and proves himself. And for the next four weeks, there's tons of appearances. I was going to put a chart, but I was running out of time of all the appearances that are spoken of to James first. Corinthians talks about the 500 at one time. Um, Many appearances take place over the next um, four or five weeks. And then, 40 days later, to put this all in chronological order for us here, our final one, there is the ascension. Um, The ascension takes place Acts chapter 1, it takes place from the Mount of Olives. He's already met with the disciples on a mountain in Galilee, giving the Great Commission. More on that in a minute. But the ascension that is promised by the messengers there, that just as you saw him go, you're going to see him come back, which is exactly what it says in the Old Testament prophets, that God one day is going to come back, set his feet. The Lord is going to come set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Well, the Lord doesn't have feet, but... The God-man does, and he's going to come back, set his feet on the Mount of Olives, split the Mount of Olives, and it's going to be the great day of the Lord, and the great day of the Lord hasn't happened yet, um, but it will happen when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, which is not when he takes his church up. Those are two different events. Everyone believes in the rapture. People ask, do you guys believe in the rapture? I believe, you, everyone believes in the rapture. The rapture is in the Bible. The question is, when does it happen? And, uh, of course, I'm of the persuasion that it happens before the 70th week of Daniel or the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. We meet the Lord in the air. We hang out for at least seven years. Marriage, supper of the Lamb. We come back with Christ when he touches his feet back down on the Mount of Olives. Just as Acts chapter 1 said, he left. He's coming back the same way. Gospel of Matthew. Let's do our best to get a couple quick things about the Gospel of Matthew, and then we'll call it a night. The focus of Matthew, as I told you when I compared the Gospels, is that he is Jewish, of course, and he's preaching a message of the messianic fulfillment of Christ. Christ is the Messiah, and he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. If you were to look at all the references of the Old Testament in Matthew, I know we focus on the few prophetic statements that seem to be 
allegorically interpreted. There, that Matthew uses the Old Testament in a seemingly uh, loose way. I mean, it's just, uh, it doesn't, it seems like he's really stretching this to talk about, out of Egypt I've called my son, when he talks about Jesus and Mary and Joseph coming out of Egypt because they were running from Herod. Um, that doesn't seem like the original context or the authorial intent of the Old Testament there. It's true that there are references and usages of the Old Testament in ways that we should and would not ever use. I would advise you not to use the Old Testament that way. But most of the times that Matthew quotes the Old Testament, and if you look carefully at most of the time, he's using it the way that we would use it. We would use it in terms of authorial intent, the literary, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Old Testament. But what you need to know is that's unique compared to what the rabbis often did. The teachers of the law and the scribes so often use the Old Testament in allegorical ways. So he plays to that in his gospel in doing what you would find so often to almost say, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but to say, you know, here, I, I, you know, I, I got your culture. I know your culture. I, I can speak in terms of making these connections the way that you often do. But if you look at the kind of the Western way, we like to look at text of the Old Testament, which we should, I think. It's the logical way to do it. We recognize and connect uh, the Old Testament prophecies the way that Matthew generally is throughout his Old Testament um, references. Although I would say that's not the way we would prove to someone today. Look at the connections. There's three different ways that we see it in the New Testament. You see it as promises that could not have... Christ could not be the Messiah if he didn't fulfill these. Like the clear messianic promise of Malachi or Micah 5.2, that Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. If he is not born in Bethlehem, he doesn't fit the criteria. Then there's lots of statements that we find in Scripture that fit. Uh, When Jesus says on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, That fits everything in that psalm that fits the picture of what's happening on the cross. Well, then there's the third, and this is what we don't like about Matthew. Look how he's using these passages that no one would ever connect these there. But he's making these connections uh, in, in an almost an imaginative way. Uh, and I would say if you're trying to prove to someone the connection of the Old Testament, the second category is interesting and helpful. The third category is probably not helpful to anyone, although the apostles want to make those connections, they certainly can. Uh, and they're writing scripture and we're not. Uh, But the first ones are the most important ones. I call those predictive prophecies of the first order. Those are the ones that uh, Matthew is enlisting. And I know we think immediately of the exceptions, but look at the general use of the Old Testament and you'll be impressed, I think, with Matthew's use of Old Testament prophecy. Some would make the argument that the reason that Matthew is listed first in the canon is because it quotes so much Old Testament and has such a messianic flavor that that's why it's first because it's the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, could be, could be that some people um, who've made the theory, as we looked at last week, that Matthew actually came first and wasn't derivative of Mark. Uh, they'll say it came first because it was first. Um, nevertheless, as I told you last time, in canonical order, Matthew was listed first from to way, way back. Matthew was listed first in all of the lists, and we can make of that whatever we want to make of that. Uh, we could say because it's longer which again is a legitimate argument because other writings in the New Testament are grouped by length. Nevertheless, it is a great link from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All right. 
Jesus, of course, is king. And there's so much about the kingdom. I forget 40, ah, I, forget, I should have looked this up, but I'm guessing that 40 sometimes, I'm, I'm get rough and dirty, we see the concept of Basilia, the, the kingdom in, in, the, in the writings of Matthew. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. It's all about the king. Christ is the king. He's in charge. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. The Messiah is not just a priestly figure. He's a kingly figure. And certainly that's the focus in Matthew. Christ is the king. The author. The author is not internally stated, nor is it in any other gospel. It doesn't come out and tell you this is who wrote it. At least not within the text. Now the, the superscription over it in the early, early manuscripts all have Matthew. And it was ascribed to Matthew all the way back to the early 2nd century. Some would say to 117. Some would say as early as uh, 130, um, AD 130. But in the early 2nd century, we're having people ascribing that gospel to Matthew in extant writings. So there was no confusion. Matter of fact, not until recently, when I think people have way too much time on their hands, uh, have we even proposed a different author for Matthew than Matthew. Um, now, remember, Matthew was called Levi. That was his first name. He was an apostle, as we said. We had two apostles write gospels, and then we had two prophets write gospels that are associated with, with a, two prophets write gospels that were associated with the apostles. But Matthew is one of the two, Matthew and John. So Matthew is known as Levi. Remember what he did. What was he when he was called Levi? His tax collector. Now, remember, and I talk about this from time to time, the tax collectors were very powerful because Rome had said, you are able and authorized, usually they bid to get the job, and got assigned this great contract. You can go now collect taxes. Here's some Roman soldiers. Go out. You can set up your toll booth. You can set up your table. You, you can do, depending on the kind of tax collector you were, and there were so many taxes in Rome, uh, but you could with the power of Rome, ask people for money based on whatever you should, and you could pad whatever your table of, of taxes were. You could pad it with your own profit. And so they were very powerful, but of course they were hated. They were hated because the Jews thought, here is a Levi, I mean a Jew named Levi who's collecting taxes for the Romans and doing it from among his own brothers. They saw him as traitors. They didn't like him. But when you think about who he was, he was probably the richest disciple Jesus had. Most of them were fishermen, which was a decent job to have, but it wasn't as lucrative as being a tax collector. So it isn't a surprise that Matthew would write this gospel, even in the sense that he was probably um, a well-to-do person. And you remember, even as a tax collector, early on, it's described in Matthew 9 uh, that he is, Jesus is often eating with tax collectors. Uh, just like with Zacchaeus, we saw uh, you have a excited convert that's getting all of his circles um, connected with Christ. It's like you get a realtor that comes to Christ, and you get a lot of realtors now that are coming to Christ because that's the circle that this new evangelist is in. Nevertheless, former tax are very powerful in his society, but also very despised and hated. The date. We can get dates pretty well for most of the books of the New Testament. Most. I don't mean almost all or virtually all. Most. More than half. The Gospels are hard um, in part because of the source-critical arguments going on. But there are dates as early as 50 uh, A.D. 
Matter of fact, I often talk about um, like the John Ryland papyrus, um, which are a set of papyri, and we date the earliest of John to about 116, 117 A.D., but there's a book, Eyewitness to Jesus, I often refer to it without using the name of the book, talks about a uh, three papyri at Magdalen College at Oxford, and the argument in this book is pretty compelling, and I don't know what the critics have said about it since it's been written. I read early on about it, but um, they're dating those, I think, to the 60s, which even necessitates that this date is probably right if indeed that premise is right. But all I'm saying is that the most conservative folks that are willing to, you know, not be in the minority, they're going to say our manuscripts go back at least to 117, earliest John that's undisputed by people that are reasonable. Uh, But there are some that are even going to say some of our earliest manuscripts go back to Matthew and perhaps even within 10 years, 15 years of the writing of uh, these manuscripts. Anyway, we, we know we have extant quotes. We have existing quotes that, that are around from 110 A.D. So they were quoting Matthew and ascribing, you know, that these words came from Christ and they're lifting them right out of the narrative of Matthew. And as I said, people are appending Matthew's name to this as early as some would say 117, 130. But, um, I mean, it was out there being preached from by the early 2nd century. There are little phrases in the book, like the phrase in 27.8 about that field that was bought by Judas's blood money, and they said, yeah, they call it the field of blood to this day. When you're reading the Old Testament, you see that. It gives you a, a nice time marker of where these people are, you know, and usually there's big time spans there. But if that field of blood that sits outside of Jerusalem is still called that today, that's the kind of thing that reminds you, this has got to be written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I mean... I doubt that there's any connection uh, to that field and that name and everyone. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, I pass by that all the time when I'm going to work. After it was completely ransacked by Titus and they were driven out of Jerusalem. So statements like that are good hints that we've got a pre-70 A.D. gospel. So before 70 A.D., uh, the destruction of Jerusalem is a future event in the Olivet Discourse. There's no reference at all as though that's already happened. It's all given to us as though it's yet to be. And so just the consistency of the literary quality of Matthew and how he speaks of events, it seems like we've got to be before 70 AD and some would say as early as 50 AD. So we're just from 33 AD to 58 AD. We're not uh, too far away from the actual events. Now, all of that, as I say, I can say those kinds of things and build cases that are much more agreeable to everyone if we're dealing with other books of the New Testament. When you start talking about when was the date for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, that's when everyone is going to throw a flag because they have their theories about what's based on what. And so everyone toys with these dates within about 20 years or so based on whether they are believing in Mark in priority or whether they believe that Matthew came first. So I don't know. It's like last week when we deal with the source criticism questions. I, I, I'm just going to throw out it's a range between 50 and, and 70 AD. And I'd say at least got to be five. I mean, things were heating up with the revolt against the, 
Romans and all of that. I mean, it's 60, I'd say 65, 50 to 65 AD. All right. There's a lot of distinct content in the book. I showed you on that chart last week when we were talking about literary dependence, at least the theories about it. It has 20% unique material. I mean, that's unique material. It's not shared with, it's not shared with uh, Luke, and it's not in, in Mark. Okay? What are some of those things? Just for fun, I'll list a few. I don't know if you want to write any of these down. You don't have to. The Magi, you're not going to find that in any of the Gospels. The flight to Egypt, which again may have been just because Luke uh, or Matthew wanted to quote that connection that the rabbis, the kind of quotations of the Old Testament the rabbis would make. Parables. Here's a bunch of parables that are only in Matthew. The wheat and tares, right? Don't know whether I should let the tares grow up in my field because uh, maybe I should pull them out. Remember the angels say, no, don't pull them out because you might pull out the real stuff. The hidden treasure. I found this hidden treasure in a field, sold everything I had, went back and bought it. Pearl of Great Price was a parallel parable to that. A man who found that great pearl and he sold everything he had so he could buy the pearl. The dragnet, the big net, everything was caught in, which is part of our graphic, not only for the fish, but reminds me of that dragnet parable. All of those are unique to Matthew. Uh, other parables, the unforgiving servant, which is a dramatic story. We quote it all the time, and it's I preached directly out of it several times. You know, you've been forgiven this much, and you're out there beating this fellow slave because you um, are so unforgiving, and the master gets a hold of him. Other servants fink him out. The day laborers, some hired in the morning, some midday, some in the afternoon, all paid the same. Two sons in the vineyard, one goes out, and one says he's not going to work in the vineyard, remember, and he goes out and works anyway. One says he's going to work in the vineyard, and he doesn't go. Uh, the ten bridesmaids, the ten virgins, and their lamps, remember those? The readiness parables, or that one parable at least. Peter's, I should say, attempt to walk on water, I guess he took more steps than you did, but it didn't last very long. We have the story of that sea and Jesus walking on the water, but we don't have that one segment of Peter walking on the water. And again, I'm giving you unique material, and I'll do that for all the Gospels, but, uh, or at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Everyone's building theories about dependence based on that. They're trying to figure out why would they do that. In other words, the reason people would say, like the great... Greasebox theory. The reason they would say Matthew can't be first, they'll say Matthew can't be first because if Luke had known and Mark had known, let's just stick with Mark, that that beautiful, wonderful, amazing story of the of the Beatitudes and all that was there, he never would have left that out. See, those are theories that are based on the unique material. And and so people are trying to figure out why would Mark leave it out? Why would Luke put it in? I just think that's way too far down the road, and I don't think it's helpful because you, it, you can look at it 15 different ways. I'm just giving you the unique material, and maybe you can make some rhetorical reasons as to one why one hasn't, one doesn't. That statement about uh, the church being built on, on the rock, right? Peter says, um, you're the son of the living God, uh, and he says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. He makes the play on words about Peter, which... I mean, stone and rock. I've on this rock. I'll build my church. Uh, it's the only gospel, by the way, that uses that word church, ecclesia, which is interesting too. When your brother sins against you, what to do, how to respond. 
all of that only used in in Matthew. This list is getting long, sorry. Judgment of the nations. This is interesting. It's so unique in that scene. Uh, it's a, it is a unique judgment, by the way. It's a unique judgment of the nations, I think, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, I'm sorry, the end of the uh, tribulation, beginning of the millennial kingdom. At least that's my theory on that. We could talk about it another time. The death of Judas, it is discussed in Acts, of course. Remember I said Sunday about the death of Judas, so we don't read it in Luke, but we, we do read it in Matthew. But then it comes up as a summary in Acts chapter 1, that Judas kills himself. Pilate washing his hands. I mentioned that earlier. It's just one of the ways you summarize Pilate, right? He's going to wash his hands of the thing. This is the only gospel that speaks of him actually doing that. Of course, they all discuss his role. Really strange scene about the saints being raised when Christ is crucified. The temple veil is torn, remember? And the saints are raised. There's some Christians that are raised, or just godly people, the old covenant that are raised, and they go into the city and appear to people. Only gospel that mentions that. The guards at the tomb, that someone, uh, that, that they're told to watch the tomb. We only get that from Matthew. Believe it or not, the Great Commission. Now we have other forms of it. Luke 24, we're going to read about Christ, talking about repentance to all the nations and all that. But when he goes in that scene to the mountain and speaks to the 11 and says, here, go make disciples of all the nations, the way that it's put and the scene, the narrative, only in Matthew. I thought I'd show you how often the miracles are here. I think this is because of the Old Testament emphasis on the fact that he is God. Uh, 20 of the 36 Miracles of Christ are listed in Matthew, which I think is the most. Did you get all that? 20 of 36? You want a simple outline? How about three points? Simple as it gets. Introduction of Christ, his opening, his establishment, John the Baptist, all of that, the first three and a half chapters or four and a half chapters. No, three and a half chapters, right? One, two, three, and 11 verses of four. The wisdom and the power of Christ, which is just shorthand for a lot of teaching and a lot of his miracles, even though it goes through the Galilean and Judean ministries, all of that. I'm just making it as simple as possible. And once you get to 1621, all the end times, he predicts his death there in that paragraph in 1621 through 2026. And he says he's going to go and be crucified, and then all those events unfold about the passion of Christ. And when I say passion, you remember what we're talking about, passion as in suffering, the sufferings of Christ, and his redemption that he secures for us, including his resurrection. That's as simple an outline as you're ever going to get on Matthew, by the way. And I looked at a bunch of super long ones. And I started with a long one. I said, no, I'm going to make it very simple for them. All right. Let me pray for you. God, I know we deal with this so often as a uh, note-taking exercise, which is good for us to do. We remember things better that way. But God, I pray that we would recognize that what we're discussing is the framework for the most important person in all the world, the person that we trust in for our forgiveness, the person that will return one day for us, a person that will then return with his feet on the Mount of Olives in judgment on this world and will save his people. I believe at the end of that tribulational period when you are ushering in a brand new kingdom and God will know him, we'll see him, we'll, we'll have his, his 
wisdom dispensed from his capital, his throne, his, his uh, palace, if you will. That, that, that'll be a great day and we'll know him in a way that we can only just sketch together in our minds. So thanks, God, that we can at least study this in that objective way, but we look forward to seeing Christ face to face. We see through a glass dimly, only through the stories that we have, even as we read this week in Galatians, that we see him portrayed through preaching. We envision that scene of his crucifixion, as Paul said to the Galatian Christians. But more than that, we envision everything, not just his crucifixion, but his ministry, his miracles, his birth, his 12-year-old scene in the temple, all those things we envision. But we can't wait till our faith is sight and we have you, uh, God, being glorified by your son being our king on a throne in a real place. So, God, thanks for us learning about the historical ministry of Christ. We look forward to the future ministry of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.